Do you want to make a positive impact on the world but don't know where to start? Does learning about the challenges people face make you want to help but you don't know how? Do thoughts and prayers sound fine but you think taking action is better? If so, you're not alone. I'm Caitlin McHugh-Stamos, and I feel exactly the same way. But maybe if we look at one issue at a time and take one action at a time, we will end up making a difference. On this podcast, I interview people who are tackling the world's problems and learn how we can be of service to their causes. Maybe you'll want to volunteer, donate, or even create your own unique way of making a positive impact. And if that sounds overwhelming, I want you to know that just by listening and following, you are helping. The net proceeds of this show will go to the nonprofits we interview. So thank you for being a world changer and asking, how can I help? Stamos. Today's episode is another very important, dear to my heart cause. You may remember back in August of 2021, our troops were rapidly and chaotically trying to leave Afghanistan as part of an agreement that was established, that was negotiated between former President Trump and uh, the Taliban. And President Biden decided to uphold that contract with them, even though the Taliban have not quite held up their end of the deal. But we we did. We left we left Afghanistan. And in doing so, we ended up leaving behind a lot of people who were allies to the U.S. who were promised that they would be taken care of if they helped us. And they put their lives, they put their families' lives at risk by helping the U.S. government. And we abandoned them. And you probably saw at that time a lot of news coverage of incredible organizations and some U.S. troops, troop members who were really trying to help their friends out. They were trying to get them onto planes, get them to safety, knowing they were in imminent danger if they were to be left behind. They would be hunted by the Taliban. They still are, by the way. And we're going to hear more about that. So in that time, as an American citizen, I'm sure you and I, a lot of us were just going, what can we do? What can we do to help? And we were donating to these these organizations, and they did great work, and they got out as, as many as they could in the time, and they've been trying since. And one of them is No One Left Behind, and we're going to be talking to them later on in this episode. They're doing fantastic work, and they have not given up on this promise that we made. Thank goodness, because it is still very dangerous over there. So yes, back in August of 2021, I was in touch with some people in Afghanistan. I was, I'm just one little old person who had, has no connections with anyone, but I was doing the best I could, staying connected with people over there and, and trying to fill out the forms to help them get on the list they need to be able to exit the country and get to a place of safety. And I was unsuccessful in that time where others were successful. And I'm, that's amazing, but I haven't given up. And so you're about to hear from my friend who I was talking to in that time, and we've stayed in touch, and he is still in Afghanistan with his family and still scared. We're going to hear from him, and then we're going to hear from Mike Mitchell, the executive director of No One Left Behind, and his team is going to actually try to help my friend get out of there, along with all the other thousands of people that they're helping. And uh, we're also going to hear from Major Kristen Grice, who's a phenomenally accomplished woman who served time over there, and she was able to help her interpreter get out. 
there's so many stories like this. There's actually a great movie that Mike invited me to the premiere of just last night. I got to see The Covenant. Spoiler alert in three, two, one. If you want to see the Hollywood version of all of this, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a soldier whose uh, life was saved by his interpreter. And then he, in turn, tries to save his life. And uh, in true Hollywood fashion, of course, he does. And we are going to do that. We're going to give that happy Hollywood ending, hopefully, to every one of our allies who are still in Afghanistan because we owe it to them. So thank you for listening to this episode, for wanting to keep this promise to these amazing allies. And let's hear from one of them right now. Thank you. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, this podcast sounds pretty good. I wonder who produced it. Well, it's Citizens of Sound, and they really are awesome to work with. When they reached out to me about starting a podcast, I decided to hit up other of their podcasters to see what it's like working with them. And every single person I spoke to said it was a wonderful experience to work with them. And I have to say that I've had nothing but a wonderful experience as well. I highly recommend it. So if you're considering starting your own podcast, I highly recommend hitting up Karis and Will Rutherford of Citizens of Sound. Citizens of Sound offers podcast branding, ideation and conception, episode production, consulting and training, music licensing and original composition, management and booking, audio production, YouTube production, content production, everything that you need to make an awesome podcast. Go to citizensofsound.com for more information and to connect with Karis and Will. They'll get you started on your podcast and I can't wait to hear it. Shaw has worked as a translator and fixer for the U.S. and NATO in very dangerous or high red zones in Afghanistan. His family has suffered devastating consequences of this work. In August 2012, a group of unknown gunmen attacked my car and in this incident, my wife got killed and the attackers managed to escape. It happened while I was driving home with my wife and kids and since then, I have been threatened to death regularly by unknown people, but somehow I managed to hide and had no choice except relocating my family frequently. Since the Afghan government collapsed on 14th August 2021 and the security crumbled in Kabul, my family has been in serious danger and we can't be safe anymore. I asked him what it's like living in Afghanistan now. It is a total nightmare, a disaster, a completely living crisis for me and for my family, and especially for my two teenage daughters. 18 months or more of living in fear of being arrested or killed this morning, this afternoon, or maybe this evening, or maybe tomorrow. 18 months of living with fake names and identity, not visiting families and friends, 18 months of no work and no school for my two daughters. It is a total nightmare that I have never expected and I was never ready to experience. He hasn't given up hope. Shah continues to check on his SIV application, which is one of over 100,000. And luckily for them and for us, we have Mike Mitchell and no one left behind who will not give up on them. My interview with Mike, Major Grice, and her interpreter is coming up next. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on this roundtable. We've got three wonderful 
awesome guests for you today. First, we have Major Kristen Greist, who is a first-generation in-service West Point graduate, first female to graduate the Army's Premier Leadership Academy in 2015, uh, Ranger School, the first female to branch and command an infantry unit in the U.S. Army, and uh, in April 2016, broke barriers again when she became the first female Army infantry officer transferring from military police, and she was named Fortune Magazine's list uh, World Greatest Leaders in 2016 and was inducted into the U.S. Army's Women's Foundation Hall of Fame in 2018. That's a lot, my friend. (laughs) We've got Mike Mitchell, who grew up in Afghanistan, I saw, and has lived and traveled around the world. He's the executive director of No One Left Behind and has an extensive background in nonprofits with significant experience in refugee, immigration work, housing, workforce development, and economic development. And prior to his role at No One Left Behind, he led the Luminous Network for New Americans, where he helped to build a local organization serving immigrants from more than 35 countries. And before that, he served in senior roles at two national refugee resettlement organizations and has served as volunteer with AmeriCorps and he has worked on Capitol Hill. So also way under accomplished. <laughs> and, uh, and then amazingly too, we have, no, thank you, Safi. And I, I, I apologize for butchering that name, but we were going to be calling him Safi <laughs> throughout this interview. And thank you so much for joining us. He is an Afghan immigrant who was an ally and worked with major Grice. And we're going to hear all about their story and Mike Mitchell at No One Left Behind helped get him to the United States. We're going to hear about this and and all the ways that we can help our Afghan allies who have been left behind and who are working their way to a safer place. So welcome. Hopefully, was that an okay introduction for everyone? Right. That was my you Google did. searching. <laughs> yeah. You did well. Uh, okay, good. That was great. <laughs> thank you. So first off, thank you all for joining me here. I'd like to start with what Afghanistan was like even before Americans got there. And I guess and Mike, maybe all of you could really probably speak to this, especially Mike who grew up there and Safi, who's most of your life, I'm sure, was in Afghanistan. Do you mind sharing about what it was like? Well, whenever before like the fall of Afghanistan, so like everything was pretty much like normal. The way we just like got used to it, it wasn't that normal, but we got used to that. And uh, the life was pretty much moving on and we were just like getting used to it. But whenever it just like fell, like the country fell. So like after that, like it was totally changed. Like the basic rights of the human beings. So like the basic rights of women and the basic uh, rights for like for girls. And that was taken from them. So it was really hard and the way that everyone is just trying to get out of there because like nothing is normal there. But before before the fall of the country, it was all right. Females, boys, they had like rights to their education. They could go to their schools and everything. So a female could just go to their jobs normally. But after the fail, those all things have been taken from them. It was like a really misery and everyone in Afghanistan suffers. At the moment we are talking, everyone out there, they are in their homes. No one can just go to their job and especially the girls and women, they do not have the rights to go to education, get education, no rights for their schools, no jobs, no nothing. So everything pretty much changed after it. But before it was a right. It wasn't that normal like that, like the people have life in the U.S., but people were happy with it. 
What was it like for you growing up there, Mike? Wow. You know, I grew up there in the 70s and I spent the early part of my life there. My father was Peace Corps director in Afghanistan. And so it was before the Soviets invaded the country. And so it was actually very Western in many ways. And women had the opportunity to go to school. And it was a society where you just got to experience the beauty of the Afghan people and share in the delight of who they were. After the Soviets invaded and we were back in the States, um, my family even welcomed an Afghan refugee. And so it was devastating to see the country fall back into the hands of the Taliban, but so grateful to be associated with, you know, the people on this call who are all, that Safi is here with us safely in the U.S. and that Major Rice is with us, who played a big role in Safi's journey here in the same way that Safi supported her there. Yeah, let's talk about that. Kristen and Safi, what, what was your work like together in Afghanistan? I was an advisor team leader. So this was 2019. I was an infantry officer, but our unit was uh, 12 military advisors from the U.S. Army partnering with the Afghan Army at a battalion level, which is about 600 soldiers. So we would advise their leadership. And that was really the effort, the main effort for the U.S. Army by the end of the war in 2019 was trying to get their army like really up and running on all cylinders. And, uh, you know, Safi was absolutely instrumental in, uh, and critical for us to be able to do that work. We wouldn't even be able to communicate at all if it wasn't for Safi. And all the linguists that volunteer and sacrifice and put themselves in jeopardy to go out on missions with us every single day, just so that we can conduct our mission and engage with either the local population or in this case, you know, the commanders. So, you know, he was outstanding. He had to walk through Kabul get to, you know, the base we were at, go out on missions with us, get in the vehicles with us, be at the same, you know, level of danger and risk. And, uh, and then he had to walk back home as well. And through all of that, the Taliban could have been watching him and, and noticing that he was helping U.S. soldiers. So that greatly put him in, in, in danger, but he was very selfless in, in volunteering to do that. We're very grateful to him. And Safi, do you have a family you were going home to? Any kids? Uh, we're here, so I'm by myself. My family's in Afghanistan. They're still trapped in Afghanistan. I'm married, but my wife's also trapped in Afghanistan. Uh, since, like, the Taliban just closed, like, the direct threats of passports, and she cannot take the passports. So the passport direct threat is closed, but they're just, like, selling passports in the black market, which is, like, not almost affordable but i'm trying to get them out and i hopefully i'm gonna make it yeah so like for now i'm here by myself and i'm really grateful like finally i got to us and i'm safe so like i really appreciate it from Aaron, especially from Kristen grace who helped me throughout uh, this journey and helped me get out of there from the uh, director of no one left behind organization uh, Mr. Mike, they just did an amazing job uh, to get a language out of Afghanistan, take them to third country, like most of uh, most of the times they're taking like right now. So there is no actual embassy in Afghanistan, but people who are getting out of Afghanistan, they have to make it into third country first. But going to third country, it's not that easy because like it was like uh, for two years, I did have I didn't have no job, no nothing. So like I ran out of all my savings. So like it was like a bit of challenging to stay in the third country for two months or or more than two months. So 
you got expenses, you got to just like rent a room and stuff like that. So that was an amazing job that No One Left Behind is doing, supporting people uh, in the third country and also in Afghanistan to get out into safety. Thank you. I want to go back in time a little bit back to uh, Kristen. So you guys were working together, very vital job, and then suddenly Americans were called home. And when, when you left, Safi was still in Afghanistan. And what was it like leaving these friends who helped get you through so much over there, not knowing about their safety as they stayed behind? Right. So I left in November of 2019. You know, when I left, we had initiated the special immigrant visa process. I felt very confident. I was like, oh, well, this is a program that the U.S. Uh, State Department has set up through the Department of Defense. It was a special program to sort of expedite a visa for anybody who worked with U.S. forces like linguists. So we had initiated the paperwork. I wrote my letter of recommendation. Safi had gathered all of his documents that he needed to apply. And so when I left, he was still there, but I was thinking, okay, he's going to come over. You know, this he'll be brought over. You know, come August of 2021, when everything collapsed, that two-week period, you know, really, I remember August 14th to like the 31st was so stressful. He was going through such a harrowing situation. And there were other people I knew over there. And I was, I would say there was thousands of U.S. service members in America chatting over encrypted apps like Signal and WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. It was like, I didn't even want to go to sleep. I was afraid I was going to miss a message that said, get Safi to this gas station or get him to this gate right now. Mm Because we couldn't tell, all the systems had kind of fallen apart for how to orderly get people out of there because everybody just crashed, you know, rushed the airport. So we were just relying on people I happened to know on the inside, trying to send Safi signals so that he could signal to the Marines like, hey, I've been vetted by a U.S. service member. You know, we kind of had codes going. I mean, it just felt awful. It felt like, you know, people, the Taliban was knocking on their doors, kidnapping people. I had a friend whose brother got kidnapped. Because he was a doctor and the Taliban just said, hey, I'm, he's our doctor now. You just felt so helpless to be able to do anything about it at the time. And there was such a ticking clock. So I was just so grateful that over the last year and a half, really, we just kept steadily you know, pursuing the immigrant visa process and no one left behind organization really isn't leaving anyone behind. They've just stayed with, stayed the course. And even though it's taken a while, Safi got here in January, it's just so grateful to meet him at JFK airport finally. (laughs) Yeah. So you helped fill out all these applications through this government program. And then how was it that no one left behind helped get him through? Actually, I fill out my applications, but there are some of the process processes that uh, that are like a bit tricky. So you have to get someone's help with that. And also other than that, like to help you so like support someone so like uh, in the third country and also in Afghanistan helping through like putting you on the list of the evacuation which which has not worked in Afghanistan like the evacuation process is still going on in Afghanistan but that didn't work for me because it was taking too longer but when I got to Pakistan, they helped me. They helped me with the with the housing, and they helped me with my paperwork and stuff. And uh, also, just like then, I made it through like that, and I finally just got to the U.S. 
So, Caitlin, there are, that's one example out of 2,500 over uh, the past several years. And No One Left Behind does a couple things. So, formally, we work through the U.S. government and the Department of State to try and push along the applications. No One Left Behind has a database with more than 40,000 names of people who have applied for special immigrant visas. The actual number is presumed to be much higher, at least 80,000 who worked alongside U.S. troops. And if you include family members, we're up to 160,000. It is vital that we not leave those folks behind. Um, Outside of the formal process, No One Left Behind is also supporting things like visas, paying for visas, paying for what we call a sustainment, which is housing. But we couldn't do that without people like Major Greist, who play a role in communicating with us and who also play a role sometimes in financially supporting the people that come. So it's a real partnership between the community, the U.S. government, uh, former service members and existing service members, and all of those together making the difference. So we've made a difference for many like Safi, but we have a long way to go and a real commitment to follow through on. Yeah, but it looks like you have helped a lot. I looked up some stats for you guys. And so currently have 50 groups and 182 people in Pakistan that you helped or in 15 families, 48 people in the U.S., right? Is that right? Is that still accurate? Yeah, that's actually just since January. We've uh, Oh, that's just since January. Yeah, yeah, that's since January. It's about, we're we're somewhere around the number of 300 300, right now. That includes family members. And we are working on more than that. The constraints are, of course, the capacity of the U.S. government in Pakistan to process what's called COM approved. So once somebody gets through most of the process. And then we're also trying to figure out, are there third countries that can help us? We're in conversations with not just third countries, but U.S. embassies in third countries as well. And we could increase the number of people we could get out. Oh, that's good to hear. And Safi, what's it like living in the U.S. now? And do you have and what's your communication like with family in Afghanistan? And do you have a sort of time when you hope to see them again? I really wish to see my family uh, maybe one day in the United States. So I'm really hopeful I'm going to make it. And also like life is different pretty much from Afghanistan. But they're really worried and concerned for their safety in Afghanistan especially my wife. So uh, she hasn't got uh, her passport yet because like the passport directorate is closed and the one uh, they are selling is like not affordable. So they are just like selling it in the black market. So so I'm, I'm also really concerned for that because like living here by myself, so like it's kind of hard and my wife is still like trapped in Afghanistan. But I'm still trying to just like find ways to get her out because like it's like really dangerous for her because everybody knows like her husband was associated with the u.s army and NATO forces uh, and that's like a real danger for her so it continues to be you've heard of more more people in afghanistan who are still just being kidnapped for having associations with Americans? That's ongoing. Yes, that's still ongoing. Like few days ago, so like like two days ago, I just like saw in the social media one of my friends. So like he was sharing that eleven of uh, people were just like uh, got shot by by Taliban and they got killed. So like they killed those eleven people who who has like a business, a personal uh, business. They were doing a personal business. Uh, but they just like kill them for no reason. So like everyone's safety in Afghanistan is at risk. Like no one is safe, especially those 
who got associated with the foreign forces, with the NATO forces, with the U.S. Army. So they, they are in, in a grave danger. And Caitlin, just to add some additional context to this, um, No One Left Behind has just completed a survey of SIVs in Afghanistan. So I want to emphasize there's no way to necessarily validate this in a, in a really deep way, but we know that there are at least 271 murders that have happened by the Taliban of people who are in Safi's shoes, who worked with U.S. troops. And that's just what we could count from an informal survey. And so we know the Taliban is actually hunting people, and many people that we talk to are in hiding around the country. And so we've got to do something about continuing to support people like Zafi who are still there and under threat where the Taliban are actually hunting them. I just want to add some context too about the role that linguists play. I mean, yes, they're critical for actually accomplishing the mission. I mean, we couldn't even talk to anybody without them, but they also keep us safe in such a way that we wouldn't be able to because they can read the area, right? They know what's culturally normal, what's unusual, and they can let us know, and they do, you know, hey, something's off here. They give us the underlying context. You know, you could have a conversation with somebody in Afghanistan and think everything is fine. And then, you know, a linguist might tell you like, hey, they're actually upset about this because they understand the cultural norms. And so they prevent us from making, you know, any sort of cultural mistakes. And they also keep us aware of like, hey, this, this is a dangerous area. They have the intel from just the local communities of like, hey, we should not go there today. So they really kept American soldiers safe over there. And it's also part of the reason we feel so indebted and anxious to get them over here to safety. Yeah, absolutely. And so you still have people over there, Major Grice, that you know that you're trying to help continue over here? So fortunately, one of my, my linguists from my first deployment in 2013, he had family that we were able to get out. But two of the people that I'm trying to get over here were not linguists, but they worked for the Afghan National Army. They each have, you know, several kids and they were just also very helpful to us, very pro-American and very, you know, great people that I'm trying to get through the uh, priority one visa over here. But that's a little bit of a longer process. It's so hard. I actually, in that time, in that August of 2021, I came in contact with someone in Afghanistan who was helping a friend of ours, an American journalist and help keep her safe while she was over there. And she was trying to reach out, hey, can anyone help me get this person to safety? And so I started doing the same things. I was WhatsApping in the middle of the night. I wasn't sleeping all night, just technically worried. And I was in contact with somebody else who was trying to get people onto planes. Remember when the airport was open, we weren't sure how to get out. And then I remember getting a, you know, what's a message from someone saying, tell them to go to this gate right now. And I go, okay. And I I WhatsApped it. (laughs) And then two hours later, that gate blew up. And I was like, tell me you didn't get to that yes. gate. And he's like, no, I didn't make it out to that <laughs> gate. Okay, thank God. But it, just the information yes. just kept changing so rapidly. And the next thing you know, it was all shut down. And he continues to be in hiding in Afghanistan. And he's not, he's, mm-hmm. so, and because he's not someone who helped, or, or there, I don't know if there's proof of him helping the government per se, even though I know that he did, like that, that you know, it has to, you know, because of the certain ways that things have to go, he knows that he's being hunted, but the the channels for being able to help him are so, it just seems so vague. I try filled out all the paperwork for him and I contacted our congressman, but I was like, but I, I don't know, it's been almost you know, a year and it's still trying to figure yes. a lot of it out. But Mike or Kristen, what, what other challenges have you, have you faced in this? What, what are some of the biggest challenges in, in trying to help get people to safety? Well, I mean, Safi actually has Safi actually has a similar story about he was at that gate. It was Abbey Gate, yes, um, at the airport, and he had worked so hard to get to that point. It was thousands of people that he had to get through, and I remember, and he could tell it better than I could. But from my perspective, I was like, he had 
gotten hurt essentially when they tried to rush. He was, you know, he was trying to get in and kind of in the crowd got injured. And, you know, he told me, he's like, I got to leave. Like, I got to go find a doctor. And I was like, Safi, just try to stay there because I don't know what doctor, you know, like the whole place is falling apart. And fortunately he did leave. And then it was like about 15 minutes later that that explosion went off right where he was. And, and I had the same reaction of like, please tell me you left and didn't listen to me. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the the heroin experience of it. Yeah. So it's interesting because some of my colleagues, one of my colleagues was in the Marine Corps and had many buddies that were among the those killed um, at Abbey Gate uh, when that bomb went off. And, you know, the challenges right now that continue, they're, they're really in two buckets. One is sort of administrative challenges in making the process easier in processing many of these applications. And the second is legislative, because right now there is an SIV program, but it needs to be renewed every year by the U.S. Congress. And maybe simplified. And make it simplified, right? And actually, it's a 12-step process to go through. And it's very easy to, to get declined. And sometimes no one left behind doesn't know why someone was declined, even if we know that the officer supporting their application, like Major Grace, is completely credible and knows the person. But there are other reasons among those 12 steps. For example, if somebody worked with U.S. troops and they were at month 11 and they were injured, they would not qualify for the SIV program because they didn't hit a full year, even though they worked with U.S. troops. So one of the things that we're trying to do is work with the U.S. Congress and both parties and have many allies on both sides to make the SIV program permanent. Because the story that Major Rice shared about just even the contextual being in an environment, for example, one of our colleagues on the board talks about the story where he was an army ranger and he was with his interpreter and the interpreter talked to children. And the children there spoke of how there were some IEDs that were right along the path where his company was about to walk. So it's that kind of thing that we've got to overcome, both the legislative and the administrative challenges so that we can help more people get here. Do you have legislation written that just needs to hit the floor or is it still in the process of getting ironed out? We're talking to different congressional offices um, and have proposed language to those congressional offices. And obviously it would be up to the Senate and the House in terms of what they do. But we luckily there are some veterans who are in Congress, both in the Democratic side and the Republican side, that are working on this issue. But we certainly want the public to speak up and speak for this issue. I mean, keep in mind that Afghanistan to many Americans might be in the rearview mirror. But really this issue is contextual to America. American national security ongoing. And that's why it's also such a vital issue for all of us. As well as just just keeping our promises. If we said, hey, if you help us, we are going to make sure you're okay. And we shouldn't be people who don't keep our promises, even if it was in the rearview mirror. Right. Which it's not. And that's why at No One Left Behind, we often talk about keeping our promise, which is essential. Let me tell you something about the SIV process. So I applied for SIV process in late 2020. It took me almost like from two to three years to get through it. So like at first I was waiting on the CAM approval, which was not like approved because like they were asking me for uh, two years HR, but I was only missing like like 16 days from two years. So like, yeah, I was like, like this is 16 days, but I still worked like like I was still tending to work. But uh, during downsizing of the U.S. troops, I got released 
and because uh, like they were kind of telling like uh, there is not much stuff going on so we cannot hire like that much languages so you gotta you gotta be released so then i got released and the way i checked it so like i was only missing like 17 days from two years and then i just applied for siv the way i saw it like it was dangerous for me in afghanistan but uh, after like six months or seven months i received a letter saying like you uh your your hr letter is not complete like it has to be for two years but this is like missing 16 or 17 days i was like what like <laughs> i was almost there so like yeah. like i was still tending to work like even if 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 uh right now i'm just like needed for service i will be available i will be always available for service but that took me like three years like after a while then i just the way i checked my uh my hr and uh, then i went through like much of the paperwork to make sure that i worked for two years then i was keep like emailing my company uh mission essential company that uh, here are the proofs that i worked for two years so they were still saying like like our systems are not like lying and stuff like that and i was in afghanistan and at real danger but no one was just like caring for that and uh, then after a while so like they made sure like i worked for two years they gave me like a two-year hr and uh, after that like major christian grace she helped me with the process to get through it so like after uh, the fall of uh, afghanistan so it was pretty quick the way i just received my approval and uh, then whenever i got approved for siv the evacuation process for, for from afghanistan was stopped so then i just was trying to make it into third country that took me like like nine months i was waiting for for evacuation pl- flight but for nine months, I was in hiding in Afghanistan. I could not see my family. I did not see my family for nine months in the same country I was living, but I could not see my family. After that, I just moved into third country and for two to three months I was there. And then luckily I got my visa and finally made it to United States. The SIV process, that is like basically really slow pl- process and it's taking like longer for for SIVs and there was like something something that uh, they were uh, trying to explain to people that the interpreters are the priority and then there are some other contractors but uh, I didn't see no priority in this uh, process because like the way I was a linguist and it took me like that longer so uh, now I'm imagining like how how much more longer it's going to take for other people. Yeah, too long. I mean, and we have Americans who just get frustrated at the DMV for a few hours. So <laughs> that's what the uh, the process for you know filling out the forms. And I will say, I was actually you know at the end of it when I guess in hindsight when he came home, I was impressed that it all worked because there was you know stretches of months where you don't hear anything back, and it's just like is is this just gone? Is there any hope at all? And then I would randomly get an email from you know somebody at the State Department. Maybe an automated email, but they would actually respond to if I had a question, which I was pretty impressed by because I was like, I feel like it's a very tiny office that was, you know, dedicated to that dealing with 60,000 applications, but it was just a very slow, methodical, I would have to submit one type of form and they'd be like, all right, he's now at this level. He has a new case number. Now fill out this paperwork and you go to the state department site. And I thought some of the forms were 
difficult to fill out as an English speaker. Yeah. You know, I'm like, what exactly do they want from me? Make sure I'm filling this out properly in the right boxes. But I was, you know, ultimately very grateful that it did. Yeah. Did work out. And so, Mike, do you know people are still applying for this at Program Crime? We're hoping to yeah, make it a permanent thing. And then there's also the, uh, the existing list. So I'm wondering just sort of how many are being added versus how many daily are being processed. Yeah, the State Department, my numbers may not be exactly right, but the State Department is helping to fly out approximately 200 a week. But with the number at 80,000, we know it's going to take time. The other thing is that there are other organizations like No One Left Behind that are all working on this issue. And what's even more interesting and crucial is that volunteers actually are playing a big role in helping this all happen. So for example, at No One Left Behind, we have a few staff that are devoted to this, but we also have volunteers that we're in the process of recruiting. And once they learn the process with the Department of State, they can actually increase the number and facilitate more applications getting through in partnership with the Department of State. So that's a way that we are helping and that volunteers are playing a role. And in fact, we're planning to even uh, increase the number of volunteers that we have with a virtual operation center and a live operation center so that we continue this work. You know, if you go back in history to the Vietnam War, it took us about 20 years before we were really finished. And if you watch the Oscars recently and heard from one of the, you know, I, I can't pronounce his name, but he told he told the story about being a refugee. Yes. And so this work cannot end. And it's taking volunteers that are just any suburban person living out, a retiree, you name it, they're getting involved and they're making a difference. Oh, that's a great way that listeners can help. Yeah. And so is, is information to do that on your website? It is. It is. And the other thing to note, too, is that we continue to help people once they arrive in the United States. So in addition to the 2,500 that we've assisted coming to the United States, we've helped more than 4,000 with things like rent, furniture, basic needs. And we can only do that with the support of the, the volunteers and the public as well. And we're also supporting people with getting things like car loans. So last year, we did about $800,000 in car loans to Afghans who had arrived here, and they were able to purchase used cars that would enable them to get to employment and support their families. Oh, that's all amazing things. And is information and uh, for those ways to help on your website too? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's fantastic. We're going to put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And I can't say how helpful those services have been from my standpoint, because, you know, I was so excited when they're they're like, you know, okay, we got him a flight out of Islamabad. Uh, he's going to arrive on this day. Can you pick him up from the airport, you know, get him where he needs to go and help support? And I'm like, yes, you know, absolutely. Just send him over. But, you know, I, you know, as Safi knows, I've got a full-time job and everything. And like, they were so helpful in providing community support, put him up in an Airbnb, which, you know, when a lot of people come together, that's not a heavy expense, but for individual service members, for an Airbnb for a month, that's a lot. It's a lot, you know, so that is just tremendously helpful. And then he got a stipend for rent once we got him to his place in uh, Brooklyn, where he's at now. He's got, they helped us find, you know, a kind of an Afghan community where he's got Afghan roommates. Beautiful. Yeah, I was actually living in a great place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, so volunteering is a way to help, donating are ways to help. But how much does it cost to be able to fly a person or a family from a dangerous situation in Afghanistan to somewhere in safety and providing things like their food and lodging and medical exams? 
So it certainly varies depending on who and, and, and the distance and the situation, but I would say average between two and $10,000. And so we, again, are thankful for the relationship with the Department of State that offers support for sustainment in sometimes places like Islamabad, but that's not the full picture. So if you put together the housing, the travel, et cetera, it needs to be a partnership between the U.S. government and volunteer organizations like ours. And so somewhere in that, right now, we pretty much are working to bring in a thousand Afghans over the course of this year. And we estimate that the cost roughly will average about 2000 a person to get here. So if you can basically save a life for $2,000, if you, you can. can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But any amount, but any amount would be helpful too. And again, volunteering to do the paperwork seems like a even more important thing too, <laughs> considering... <laughs> How, uh, how complicated that could be. But if a lot of people volunteer, it'll go a lot faster. So thank you. Is there anything else that I am missing that we wanted to cover in either your story or things you want to share about this program or your experience? And this program is a good program that's helping like the refugees who just uh, newly got to the United States. There are some other organizations as well, but they are not doing that much the way I'm here. So like... Uh, uh, Major Chris and Grace, uh, so she paid for my uh, for my rent over here in the Brooklyn. So there are some of the organizations, but they are not doing that much. But uh, I'm hoping, like the way I'm doing it, so like I'm trying to find a good job like sooner and gotta be like that's gonna be all great soon, yeah. And Caitlin, I, I would just add that you know, in the national context, often Americans really want to make a difference, and many choose to make a difference through their national service, through the military. And there's a way that your listeners can really continue making that difference by supporting organizations like No One Left Behind and sharing the story. It's not just the story again about Afghanistan; it's a story about uh, you know American credibility and national security. And we've got to get that story out there so that we can continue to make a difference. Many of the veterans themselves feel a deep moral injury that the United States has left people behind that saved their lives. And we can't forget that. And that's even affected the mental health of many of our, our veterans who served in Afghanistan. So when you put all of this together, we just really hope your listeners will read more about it, get involved, if not with No One Left Behind, another similar organization, so that we can make sure that more Safis are coming to the United States, making this a richer country, and we can support veterans like Major Greist, who have made this country what it is. Yes. Thank you so much for your service, all of you. Thank you. And helping to keep us safe. And we, we will work hard to keep our promises to everyone who's helped us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you from everyone. Again, I'm so excited to join this uh, meeting. It was really interesting. It is so important to me that this podcast is more than just a podcast, but a community of people who are working to make the world a better place. And I want to hear what you're doing. I want to hear what your friends and family are doing that are making a positive impact. So call me at 818-732-6486. And you can learn more about our guests. And you can also contact me at howcanihelppod.com. Thank you for listening and for being a world changer. How are you? My name is Yi. I am a social worker, but I'd like to highlight the amazing work of organ procurement organizations. And there is one out in your area. It's called One Legacy. And I'd like you to just highlight that amazing work with families who are grieving and also recipients who are waiting for a life-saving organ. Um, and I think, you know, especially with 
the challenges of COVID and just the impermanence of life, this is something that can come out of good, right? So this is something good, rather, that can come out of bad. So I hope you look into them. Um, your local organ procurement organization, One Legacy, there in Los Angeles. I hope that you can highlight them. Thanks. Bye. A big thank you to Leslie Powell and Josh Gabbard for writing our beautiful, beautiful theme song. And to Karis and Will Rutherford for producing. And thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please write a nice review for us wherever you can write one. And please follow and spread the word about our little show here. And most importantly, share the love and ask, how can I help? So let's give some